Einen wunderschönen guten Tag. Hier ist äh, Thoman Tu, der Podcast aus New York, aus Amerika. Heute Folge 23 und heute wieder mal mit einem Thema, das uns direkt und indirekt immer noch sehr intensiv unter den Nägeln brennt. Die Geschichte geht so. Wir haben kennengelernt Sally Randall Brunner, eine Frau, die uns durch eine Kollegin, eine Journalistenkollegin in Berlin empfohlen wurde. Von Beruf ist sie Stewardess oder wie wir heute sagen Flugbegleiterin und hat aber eine unglaublich faszinierende Biografie, von der wir, das müssen wir zugeben, nichts wussten, obwohl sie schon vor vielen Jahren, in den 80er Jahren, ganz groß zum Beispiel im New York Magazine porträtiert worden ist auf mehreren Seiten. Sally lebt gerade den New Yorker Alltag mit dem Coronavirus, denn sie arbeitet nach wie vor, sie gehört zu den essentiellen, ja wie sagen wir das, sie gehört zu den essentiellen Werktätigen, die also mit der U-Bahn zum Flughafen fährt, John F. Kennedy, dann durch den leeren Flughafen spaziert zum Gate und dann mit den wenigen Maschinen, die noch fliegen, unterwegs ist und mit den wenigen Passagieren, die man dort dann herumschippert, unterwegs ist und die dann gleichzeitig wieder den anderen Teil von Amerika kennenlernt, nämlich die Gegenden und Städte, in denen man nur halb so stark betroffen ist von dem Virus. Das ist Sally. Aber vielleicht, Sebastian, steigst du ja nochmal ein, und erklärst so ein bisschen, was der besondere Reiz von unserem Gespräch heute ist. Ein besonderer Reiz ist, was du gerade beschrieben hast, dass sie also auf eine ganz andere Art und Weise diese Zeit auch erlebt, als wir, die wir ja in der Hauptsache in unseren Wohnungen weggesperrt sind und uns nur vorsichtig mal in den Supermarkt vorwagen, sondern die dann ein, zweimal die Woche immer noch mit der U-Bahn raus nach JFK fahren muss und unter anderem auch erlebt und auch beschreibt, wie es in der U-Bahn heutzutage zugibt, wo ja gar nicht mehr die Arbeitskraft dafür vorhanden ist, die vernünftig sauber zu halten und die mittlerweile wohl auch von den Obdachlosen beansprucht und quasi übernommen worden ist. Das war ja auch in der letzten Woche ein großes Thema. Aber der andere Aspekt von Sally ist natürlich, dass sie nicht ihr ganzes Leben lang Flugbegleiterin war, sondern dass sie aus der East Village Szene der 80er Jahre kommt und damals da so eine Existenz geführt hat, die eben für diese Ort und für diese Zeit, glaube ich, sehr typisch war. Also jetzt nicht mit einem äh, definierbaren Job, den sie da ausgeübt hat, sondern sie hat in dieser Szene gelebt, als Eventveranstalterin, als Designerin, als Künstlerin, als Socialite, würde man hier sagen, und da so eine sehr schillernde Existenz geführt hat, von der eben auch dieser Artikel in New York Magazine handelt, den du erwähnt hast. Das hat uns dann in dem Gespräch auch ein bisschen dahin geführt, diese verschiedenen... Mutationen, die New York durchlebt und die sie auch schon durchlebt hat und die sie auch äh, trotz der Krise jetzt äh, für die Zukunft von New York sehr optimistisch gestimmt hat. Wir können noch hinzufügen, dass wir ja schon seit einer ganzen Weile immer wieder mit äh, besonderen Persönlichkeiten sprechen können, die dieses New Yorker Lebensgefühl, das teilweise noch immer so funktioniert, wie es schon immer funktioniert hat, das teilweise aber auch sich verändert hat, dass wir mit diesen unterschiedlichen Typen immer wieder gesprochen haben. Ich nenne mal Wolfgang Wesener, den Fotografen aus Deutschland, der zum Beispiel, er hat mehr gemacht als nur das, aber er hat zum Beispiel eben in den 80er Jahren die Clubszene in New York 
intensiv begleitet mit seiner Kamera und äh, man kann zum Beispiel aktuell, weil er auf Instagram die alten Schwarz-Weiß-Fotos wieder auswertet, man kann also das nachvollziehen. Wir haben uns mit Jeremiah Moss unterhalten, der äh, einer der wichtigen Chronisten heute ist, also über das sogenannte Vanishing New York, also das Gefühl, dass man nach New York kommt, hierher zieht, dass man angezogen wird von einem bestimmten Lebensgefühl und dann plötzlich mit sehr viel Trauer feststellen muss, dass sich alles irgendwie ins Nichts auflöst und in dem Fall Jeremiah Moss, der große Kritiker der New Yorker Politik, also äh, durch den Namen Michael Bloomberg, den ehemaligen Bürgermeister, sehr stark identifizierbar. Also wo die reichen Leute in New York sich mehr und mehr Platz schaffen und die ärmeren Leute und die Mittelschicht verdrängt werden. Das gehört halt so zu dem, wie wir heute uns gerne mit dieser Stadt beschäftigen, weil es eben Menschen gibt, die beim Reflektieren helfen können und die auch mehr wissen, die mehr erlebt haben, die mehr nachgedacht haben als der Durchschnitt und die auch eben nicht nur dann uns so ganz kurze, knappe Soundbites liefern, sondern wirklich interessante Gedankenverläufe. Und deshalb ist es, glaube ich, auch sehr schön, solche Personen zu finden und dann ganz überraschend festzustellen, dass man da auf jeden Fall eine angenehme Stunde beim Gespräch verbringen kann. Wir könnten anfangen. So, um Hello, Sally. Hello. Very deep voice. <laughs> How come? Was that always your voice, the deep voice? Yeah, no, it's it's the same voice I've always had. You know, on Instagram, they have this New York, best New York accent challenge. There was one woman talking in her heavy Brighton Beach accent, and she was like commenting on how it seems that New York City women have a deeper voice than other women, and she was like musing about why that is. <laughs> I never had a New York accent. Uh, that usually comes with the boroughs. So just let's jump in. Um, I think we should start with um, where you are from originally. I was born in New York City. So what was the New York uh, Magazine story talking about when they talked about New England? Oh, because I spent um, my middle school and high school years I spent in Rye, which is uh, about a half an hour north of here. And people would call that New England? Um, more or less, um, but my family's an old New England family. We've been here since the 1600s, so I don't know, maybe that's why they call, called me a New Englander. So um, let's start by uh, pointing out to something that brought us to you, because you didn't look us up, we tracked you down, because you are writing uh, in your spare time, and um, you wrote something very stark and very um, interesting. Uh, you only gave it the uh, title Day in the Life, so it doesn't sound like much, but it it was a uh, great description of a day in the life. So let's start with your blog post that um, that we found out about. Well, I originally just wrote it for friends because so many people were asking me, what is it like to fly now? So rather than having to answer everyone individually, I just figured I'd write a blog. I didn't expect it to um, expand to your ears. So how is a day in, in life when you're flying these days? Well, obviously, it's it's a bit strange. It's uh, It's extremely lonely because so few people are flying, and the ones who do fly have a very specific purpose for flying. Uh, either because they're emergency workers or they're trying to get home to someone they need to take care of. In some cases, they're going home for a funeral. And there's still a few people who are simply trying to get home or away from home into a place that they feel is safer. 
So our flights have very, very few passengers and mostly uh, we're carrying cargo, medical equipment and supplies. Shouldn't we also maybe read um, something that is uh, very um, telling about um, this feeling that you had? Do you have it in front of you? or oh, The article itself? Yeah, I do. I mean, maybe you can pick, um, you know, out of out of uh, out of the blue, some uh, one paragraph or so um, that that gives us a, a good handle on, on what you were trying to say. Well, oddly enough, what I find is the most disturbing part of it is the subway ride to get there, um, and that's the one of the first paragraphs when it says, "I get to my subway and I'm alone." 15 Sorry. minutes. The A train. So, where do you live? You live on the A train? I'm on the Upper West Side. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, the, there's a photo on the blog, integrated in the blog post, that gives away at least the general area where this uh, trip starts, right? It's uh, close to the Museum of Natural History. That's what I take from the photo. Yeah, yeah I'm not from there. So that's where I catch my subway in the morning, and I usually am leaving fairly early. Um, so when I do get to the train, it is it is crowded, but with sleeping homeless people. Do you want me to read that paragraph? Please, yeah. Mm -hmm. I get to my subway and I'm alone. Fifteen minutes to the next A train. I slide my scarf down and check my phone for any flight delays or cancellations. They can come at any time these days. The subway arrives and it is packed with sleeping homeless people, mostly men. The floor is sticky with spilled soda and urine. I hopscotch around the puddles to find a seat that seems relatively clean. My scarf back up over my nose for more than just exposure to the virus, but now to try and avoid the smell that will accompany me for the next 70 to 80 minutes. Sometimes I see someone else also trying to dodge the sights and smells for a seat. We look at each other for a brief moment, expressionless beneath our facial coverings, but acknowledging that we both have a reason for being here. They're also an essential worker, another first responder. Mm -hmm. Very good. Sebastian, maybe you want to leap in? Yeah, I mean, this is, you make it very easy. So you do consider yourself an essential worker and a, and a first responder. Well, if you ask anyone in... Uh, New York or on the news even, they consider all airport employees uh, to be essential workers because the airlines are part of our infrastructure. We can't simply shut them down. What routes do you fly typically? You fly transatlantic or domestic mainly? Uh, at this point, I'm doing domestic. My routes basically are anywhere from the East Coast all the way west as far as sort of Omaha, Nebraska, Dallas, Texas, kind of that that line from north to south. So the turnaround usually is you don't even stay overnight, you come back one way and one, no? No, they're usually anywhere from three to five days, mostly four, and you'll do several legs in a day, and at the end of that day, you can end up in any other city, um, Knoxville, Atlanta, Chicago, Boston, Raleigh, Durham, wherever. And the next day. What's the routine when you get to that airport and you have to stay overnight in a place? Well, normally it's quite crowded and we get on the hotel shuttle and we go to the hotel and we stay for the night, uh, which could be anywhere from minimum rest, which is nine hours to 16 or 17. 
And you fill your time up with, uh, well, people have different ways of doing that. Some people go out and explore and some people don't. But these days when you get to the hotels, the only people really staying there are other pilots and flight attendants. So you tend to sort of pass each other in the hall on occasion and you have that, that airline nod and you continue. We're the only ones there. How do you feel about staying in places like that and about traveling um, in general? I mean, how scared are you? I, I actually am not scared, but I mean, if you talk to most New Yorkers who've been here for a long time, we lived through AIDS, we lived through 9-11, this is just another another thing to live through. So there isn't really a huge fear factor. I'm finding that the people who are afraid are mostly younger people who haven't been through anything like this before. But as old folk, are, we're pretty resolved with that. It's just a den. <laughs> Sorry, but you're traveling to places where Americans live that don't have the same sense of urgency and uh, despair. Yeah, and that changes everything um, because they have very different viewpoints. They're not thrilled by New Yorkers at this point only because they know that New York is kind of the epicenter of the virus. But um, they do take the same precautions. I do see them wearing masks. Um, they're just as nervous as we are possibly because it is even more unknown for them because they don't live in big cities. And then for some people, they're just uh, taking it as it comes and their attitude is, look, if I get it and I get sick, there's not much I can do. You just mentioned um, the AIDS crisis and that you've lived in New York for a long time. I understand you were living downtown in the 80s and lived through, through the AIDS crisis as you describe it. So how does that compare to New York now? It was more limited back back then and the fear of exposure wasn't as big. Or, or just, just tell us how the city now compares to the city then. Oh, it's a very different creature. Um, <sighs> the AIDS crisis came really not long after New York was almost bankrupt. And as a result, there were far more young people here. There were more creative people here because it was a cheap place to live. Uh, back then, you could have three or four people pull their money together and get a 5,000 square foot loft big enough to ride a bicycle in. And, uh, you know, they, they would spend maybe 20 hours a week working some part-time job and be able to afford the rest of their time to make art. So it was in general a very, very different time. It wasn't expensive the way it is now. And as a result, it wasn't um, exclusive to those who had money. But in terms of the feeling about the health crisis, um, you know, that was a major health crisis that affected a lot of people back then like it is now. But what are the, I guess, similarities and differences you're, you're noticing in the city? I think that the biggest difference is that because it was a less expensive, more crime-ridden city back then, uh, all the young people were very, very close. It was a very intimate time. In essence, everyone basically knew everyone else, as many of us as there were. So the AIDS crisis felt a bit as if it was only affecting us. There was definitely a feeling of it being, sadly, uh, our own crisis. Um, and it was because people were so much more connected back then. I think we should introduce uh, some information about the fact that you were very well connected at the time because the fact that you are now a flight attendant does not even hint at uh, what you were doing in the 80s. I was able to find an, a very long story about you in New York Magazine 
from November 1985 with the uh, headline Desperately Seeking Sally. So that was uh, a play on words, um, a film title, Desperately Seeking Susan. And the Sally in the title is You. And the subtitle was The Downtown Demi Mond's Girl of the Minute, which is a very it's a mouthful of um, stuff, I guess. Um, that was uh, also demi-intellectual times for the New York magazine. They start by describing you at the time um, as um, you were uh, sitting on a giraffe print stool beside your vanity and gazed into the mirror at 26. She still looked like a teenager, which is unusual. She had average skin, light brown eyes, and an uneventful nose. I don't know why they talk about this stuff, but anyhow, here we are. Her small mouth rested naturally in a childish pout. Her short brown hair was an unruly mass of curls. And then they talk about um, what you're doing in, in New York at the time and why you are such an interesting case to write about. Do you remember why they picked you? Uh. <laughs> Yeah, it was a period of my life where I, I seemed to be everywhere at the same time. And the woman who wrote the article had actually written several pieces about me in uh, different social columns. I, I think at the time she was fascinated with what I was doing or um, or perhaps there was a, a part of me that um, she felt in herself except that I was realizing it. I don't really know, but I was pretty busy back then. But what were you doing um, that kind of stuck out of, um, you know, what other people were doing in those creative um, times, in those crime-ridden um, young young people co con congregating times? What was so special about you? I, you know, that's it's always a hard thing to for a person to answer about themselves. But I can tell you that I had I had gone to school of visual arts in the late 70s uh, and graduated in 81 and my classmates were Keith Herring and Kenny Scharf. Uh, I think I was the first person Kenny met in New York. So I came out of a very creative group of artists and I was terribly poor at the time so I didn't have a place to make art and as a result I think I turned myself into the piece and uh, Basically, I would make clothes for myself and come up with looks that were unusual. Let's put it that way. <laughs> so I, I basically turned myself into my canvas. And because every night was, you know, a different party, different party uh, I guess I, I did good costumes. And at the time, I was constantly throwing events. I was throwing fashion shows and art shows and Uh, different things for fun. I even did, um, I even produced and directed a version of Jesus Christ Superstar as a drag queen lip sync opera, um, which was great fun. And a lot of people that you've heard of were in it. Such as? Michael Musto played Simon Zialadis. I know him. Howie Montag, who's no longer with us, um, he played Judas. Um, trying to think, Michael Schmidt was one of the apostles. Patrick McMullen was an apostle. The photographer. Yeah, a lot of people who are writers and, and artists today were were in that show. 
And uh, I remember at the time it had gotten a full page in the New York Post. So I received a letter from Andrew Lloyd Webber's attorneys. I believe it was a cease and desist, <laughs> which I wish I'd saved to this day. Where was this performed? Like at Wigstock or at the clubs? It was at Densiteria. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and, and Rudolph always, always let me throw these ridiculous parties and events. He, he always was amused by them. What comes to mind when we're listening to you is some of the interviews we have done for our podcast series. Um, and I can throw the ball to, to Sebastian because he knows what I'm talking about. Our history of talking about vanishing New York items. I, I suppose I'd like to come back to that because I feel like uh, we sort of skipped over the health crisis a little quickly, which is why we're talking today. Uh, I mean, you started talking about the AIDS crisis back then and about and about uh, the coronavirus crisis right now. And it seems to me that for the first time, you know, New York is, is kind of intimidated and scared. I haven't experienced New York like this. Uh, and so I wonder uh, if in the AIDS crisis in the 80s, that was true too, or if people were kind of more courageous about it, or if it was more localized, or, or you know, I don't know. I mean, that's the best word for it. People just didn't talk about it, and yet every other week to a funeral or a memorial service, or you were throwing one. By the time I was, I'd say, 29, I think I'd been to 50 funerals. And my mother, who's obviously much older than me, would call me for advice on, on funerals and memorials because she, she hadn't even lost the people her age yet. You think New York was tougher? Uh, that's a really good question. There was a level of toughness. You did have to have a fairly thick skin. There was also a level of naivete because we all very much believe that because we had this freedom to pursue our various arts that in in a way um, nothing bad could really happen and then this happened and we started losing friends and it was very very hard at the time because it wasn't just one or two we were losing 10 and 20 and 30 and 40 and so on um, and all very talented people and then on top of the AIDS crisis, there were the regular percentage of deaths you would have amongst your friends. So it seemed that you were constantly surrounded by death. The difference now is people are not connected they were the way they were then. You know, they're, they're on their phones. And that phone, when you hear about someone's death on, on your iPhone, it just simply doesn't have the same effect as someone calling you up and saying, hey, we just lost so-and-so. Was there the same sense as there is now that, you know, oh, my God, I could be the next guy who's going to the ER and has to be on a ventilator? Was there that same sense when you went to a friend's funeral, like, I could be next? No, because you knew how you, how you could get AIDS. It was much clearer, uh, whereas now we don't have clarity. We have ideas, we have presumptions, we have science, but we don't have enough of the science to really understand what the possibility is of actually getting this or not or or dying of it's a very very different thing and again without the connection between people that we had pre-iphones and, and pre-laptops um 
it's a different creature. Was there a greater sense of solidarity, at least among your tightly knit downtown community, I guess? Very much so. When somebody was sick, uh, everyone would sort of pitch in and be there. And if you couldn't be there, you would, you know, throw an event to raise money for doctors and whatever you could do for that person. And it was a very close-knit community. There was always mm. a rumor that went around about uh, this one friend of ours, Martin, who had been Madonna's roommate for a long time. And Martin, was we just adored him. He was a really wonderful guy, and he was terribly sick. And... Um, I don't know if this should be included in the podcast or not for legal reasons, but um, Madonna and Sean used to go down to Mexico to get Mexi uh, to get uh, meds for Martin. The other thing that comes to mind in terms of the parallel is um, back then there was a strong sense that the federal government just doesn't give a damn, as there is right right now. Does that sort of strike you that par that parallel? Yes and no. Um, Because we banded together, regardless of what the government was doing, I, I think people aren't necessarily banding together. They're just sort of comparing opinions. There's a lot of vitriol out right now. And I remember back then it wasn't about anger and vitriol. It was about, okay, well, screw them. They're, they're not there for us, but we don't have time to think about that. We have, we have to be there for each other. I do not sense that now. I just sense an awful lot of anger at the government and anger at this and anger at that. And that vitriol is simply not helping us achieve anything. So you're not wasting your time with anger either right now? My only goal at this point is to be as safe as I can, to make sure that the people around me are as safe as they can be. And that's both professionally and personally. And that I don't bring it home to my husband. I would like to quote a sentence from, I mean, it's a quotation that, that you uh, said um, at the time when this article was written. I see New York as a larger NYU, meaning New York University campus, the Manhattan University of Life. I'm getting my MA, Master's of Arts, in fame, and I'll be getting my PhD in money. Is that something you still remember, or was that just uh, a very brash statement you threw out? It was definitely a statement I threw out, but the interesting thing about it is that, um, you know, we, we didn't know what money was back then. <laughs> you know, what what was cash? I mean, you were lucky if you paid your bills, but actually it, it wasn't too many years after that, that as an artist, I actually was able to earn a living, but it was in design rather than in painting. So I actually did eventually get my PhD in money, but, but then I kind of aged out, which means I, uh, I guess I was part of the 1% for a couple of years there, and then they threw me out of the club. Can we um, actually mention a few things you did as a creative director, which was the title you used at the time when you had arrived in that industry, right? I think you called um, the work that you did then in this uh, period of your life um, you were a creative director of, of activities, campaigns, stuff like that. But can you give us some um, more concrete examples or something that, that we have an idea of what you were involved in and after you had arrived in that industry? Well, after I left the club world, I did go back to painting. And um, I did exhibit for several years. And, and there was a period of time when it seemed that all the galleries that were representing me were folding. Uh, And it was at the same moment that the internet 
was starting to explode. So this was 1997, 96, 97. <clears throat> and suddenly there was an opportunity to actually make money as an artist, but simply in the digital world rather than on a canvas or on paper. So, um, so I, I ended up moving into that world, um, getting a, a job at Robert Greenberg Associates, which, which was really quite a coup for someone who did not have a, a degree in it. I learned a lot there. And when I left there, um, I continued honing my skills, becoming an art director and eventually becoming a creative director for digital properties. It was websites. This was pre-mobile. So it was all uh, desktop and uh, it was design. And because I'd always used photography in my younger, I added photography to that as well. So, um, we had an interesting moment, Spin and I, where we lost our loft in 9-11 because it was actually in the impact zone. Um, unbeknownst to the news, there were eight apartments that were actually in the zone. So we lost everything. And after that, we, we wanted to do something tangible. It was almost like returning to the idea of materials again, but we needed to make money. So we started a bath and body line. Um, which sold in mostly in Japan, actually, um, the UK, Canada, Scandinavia, China, obviously the US. And it was in that period of time where all of the skills that I had learned and acquired over time had come into use because we did all of our own marketing, photography, advertising, graphic design, websites, packaging design. So in 2000, Eight happened, and and the uh, you know the bottom fell out of the markets. Um, we ended up closing that, and then getting we both got jobs as creative directors for other companies. Then it does that help at all? We need some some uh, you know skeletal structure in 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 all of this because um, since you know our our paths crossed in some typical New York fashion, you know <laughs> it just so happened there was no strategy, no real plan. But on the other hand, when a, when a life and a biography like yours is full of all these surprising events, twists and, and turns, we need some information. Unless we tell people, "Hey, go online, you know, find, track it down, you know, find it yourself," which is not that easy, given how much you have done. <laughs> That's the odd thing is, I I do feel as if I've had eight cat lives, and this is the eighth, um, and this is probably the most curious of the lives because, uh, you know, I started as, as a painter and became this sort of living sculpture socialite and then went into digital design and then product design. And, you know, there's, there's a, a lot of that there. And then it seems like there was just this moment where everything just stopped. That's threatening to stop now too. Or do you think, do you think about that? Do you think about your ninth life right now? <laughs> no. Actually, not at all. Becoming becoming a flight attendant was actually a really interesting step in all of it because it was the first time that I did something that was not part of the creative world, part of the cradle, so to speak, that we all came from, where I actually stepped out and entered the real world. And in doing so, there was also an aspect of the fact that you don't bring the work home. So I knew that it was going to allow me to return to making art again. But 
putting that aside, all of a sudden I had a job that anybody from any background could have where the people I was meeting were not creatives. They didn't run around with Andy Warhol. They didn't go through the AIDS crisis. They, they weren't interviewed for New York magazine. They have absolutely no concept of the world that I came from. And there's something very humbling about that on one leg and on the other, there's something that's incredibly calming because now I'm in a place where my eyes are open to a much wider base of humanity than it was before, before it was always other wonderfully creative people. I guess, I guess I'm getting at the fact that uh, the airline industry is severely threatened by the Corona crisis. So I, I suppose I'm, I'm asking how much that worries you about maybe having to make a career change yet again. I just started updating my design website <laughs> just in case. Um, I mean, I've done well there because it's really not hard to. I do think that when bailout money runs out, uh, that there are going to be layoffs because there are simply more people than there are going to be flights. I've also read that it took them six years to get back up to speed after 9-11. And this is a far worse crisis for the airlines than 9-11 was. So I'm not expecting things to go the way I would like them to. I'm not expecting that I may have a job six months from now. It would be nice, but I may actually have to go back to the cradle of creativity again. But you seem pretty calm about it. I suppose having made career changes so many times makes you relatively confident that you can do it again. <laughs> yeah, but those career changes were always tiny sidesteps. I mean, to go from painting to graphic design just isn't that hard. It's different tools. The vision is there isn't. Is it the Manhattan University of Life that really gives you this much strength in the way you talk about your uh, personal situation right now? I mean, you have been through quite a bit. Probably. I can't imagine it wouldn't. Have. I mean, this place does sort of prepare you. Give us two or three more sentences about uh, what you just said, that this place prepares you. What, what about it does prepare you, that you are facing challenges all the time? Or that you actually give, throwing yourself towards those challenges and that you are testing yourself in an environment like Manhattan? Well, when I say Manhattan, I have to include Brooklyn and with that now, since most of the Manhattanites are in Brooklyn, by the way. Um, I, I think that everything in the city is magnified. There's that many more people. There's that many more places to be creative. There's that many more places to work. Um, It's, it's a fishbowl. And the best way that I can describe the intensity of New York as compared to other places is when somebody says to me, because it'll come up every now and then, gosh, it's amazing how, how in, in New York, you know, you seem to run into famous people everywhere you go. And so many of your friends become famous. And, and I've said this several times to people who aren't from the fishbowl, that if they have 10 friends that they grew up with, that they're close to. The same person in New York City will have a hundred or a thousand. So if you have one friend out of your 10 who becomes very successful, and in New York City you have a thousand friends, which by the way is not exactly difficult, then that means you've got a hundred friends who are going to be successful. So everything is magnified. There's that much more success. There's that much more failure. There's that much more drama. Um, 
And because of all that intensity, you have to find your place in it. Are you going to be one of the dramatic ones? Or are you just going to sit back and say, I accept what's thrown at me. And most of the people I know who have grown up here, you can throw anything at them and they simply deal with it. What Cuomo said the other day, New York tough. Yeah, yeah. A lot of talk now about, or a lot of worry and speculation about what New York's going to look like after this is, this is all over. And a lot of people are saying it's not going to be recognizable all the small businesses are going to be gone you, you know whatever new york is going to be what are your thoughts on that and worries about that whenever new york comes back in a month or in a year or whenever it's going to be well here comes the experience factor of having always been here <laughs> 70s new york was almost bankrupt a beam was our mayor there were homeless people on every corner there was crime everywhere and guess what We not only survived, but we flourished. And then we created what became, over time, the world we have now. If everything changes and everything goes bankrupt and all the small businesses close down and the real estate market drops out, guess what's going to happen? More young people are going to be able to afford to move in here and they're going to start little businesses and open little studios and move into lofts with their friends and start making art. It's not going to be different from that. It'll be a version of it. They'll have their iPhones instead. But something else will happen to begin the ball rolling all over again. So New York is going to be New York. Yeah, it's going to be New York. You're not going to kill it. All you're going to do is maim it, and then it's going to fix itself and move on. You're laughing. No, this is, this is very heartwarming to hear. You know, this is what I need right now. <laughs> you should talk more often, the two of you. <laughs> Just as an added uh, piece of information, so Sebastian lives um, in um, uh, Washington Heights and has lived in, uh, I don't know, two or three different parts of New York um, and has been here um, most of his time, um, spent here uh, 20 or so years, I guess. Um, you know, I was an Upper West Side person f until I left. We have um, certain sensibilities about, you know, how great this place is, but also uh, certain insecurities from where we come from and how we grew up. And so I guess that mix is what travels with us. While when we talk to you, okay, well, we get a full blast of uh, super assertiveness and confidence, which if you can put it in bottles, you know, give it to us. <laughs> <laughs> these uh, you know, uh, semi-intellectuals that we are. Um, so in, in our podcast series, to go back to something I mentioned earlier, so we had uh, an episode with uh, a very um, special photographer, um, a German photographer, Wolfgang Wiesner, who worked under his short name, Vove, and he uh, basically grew up with his photography in the clubs of the 80s. We talked to, uh, he chronicles the, what he calls the vanishing New York. Jeremiah Moss. He's very um, saddened about uh, how the money influx um, has, uh, you know, the Bloomberg years has, have, uh, have affected New York. And we also talked to somebody about the Stonewall riots. And uh, he came to New York in the aftermath um, during the AIDS crisis and became an activist. And I'm so glad we have the chance to have now you talk a, a bit about this. So the vanishing New York theme, do you, how, do you, how do you see it and how does it affect you and how does it fit with your optimism that something will come out of whatever vanishes? 
Well, I'm not sure that I have optimism. I think it's just realism. You know, every every time a neighborhood f- falls to pieces, it rises again. I mean, this is this is just historical. So, in terms of vanishing New York, I mean, I love his work, and um, and I I completely understand how he feels about the vanishing New York, but something will take its place that will then become the nostalgia for the next group of people and so on and so forth. I mean, if you look at the history of this city, it's not the first time things have fallen to pieces. I mean, we had the stock market crash that destroyed a lot of the wealth in the city. It kind of had to start again from there. Um, After the civil war, this was crime ridden in the city, but it was also a time of a lot of growth. So, that must compare to something in present day. So in terms of vanishing New York, I do think that we've had many New Yorks vanish and many new New Yorks take their place. And every time a new New York comes in and starts to grow, there's always someone from way back when who says, oh, we've already done this. It's also interesting when you talk about Jeremiah, because I think he came to New York in the early 90s and he always said, you know, he he, he had a nostalgia for downtown New York that he never actually experienced but, but but which which was your East Village and you actually exper- experienced it so maybe maybe that's why you're not as nostalgic as he is it's <laughs> <laughs> pretty fluffy you have to admit the serendipity of of things we do um, is really in, in in those moments. It's like you, you suddenly get this little piece of information, then you you know you track down the story. You can get an idea what it means, but it opens up our conversation and it broadens it because it's not like we need to really talk about the article. We we just try to introduce um, you to our audience in a way that um, they can get you know some idea of you know who's the person and what's the background. But then, like we did during our last, you know, I don't know, 20 minutes or so, we, we kind of, uh, you know, we, we take our, uh, you know, surgical tools and <laughs> we slice and dice um, whatever we have in front of us. And um, that leads me to my n- next question. Um, you, you lived a life full of uh, events and full of activity. And usually people tend to think about this, uh, to write it up, um, maybe in an autobiographical fashion. Um, would you say it's your turn to tell, um, you know, non-New Yorkers about what you have witnessed? I think that there's a lot of other people who are like me, who were integral at a time um, and an important part of the scene at a time, but didn't become more famous later. Um, and as a result, I, I, I think that there's a possibility for an awful lot of autobiographies out there. I have no intention to write one myself. I think if somebody came to me and said, okay, let's do something with this, I might consider that. But in terms of sitting down and writing this all down, that's probably what all the other people I know are doing as well. In fact, there's a lot of uh, documentaries and books out right now by my peers. I mean, Michael Alago, you know, that that piece is out now, the documentary, Who the Hell is That Guy? Um, obviously, there's the Studio 54 ones and all of that. Tiger King just came out that Eric Good did. 
uh, he came out of area. He, uh, he was one of the owners of area. I mean, in a way he hasn't gone autobiographic, but he's taken what he did at area and now done it in, in film. Um, so there's a lot of, a lot of our stories are getting out there. I don't think I'm particularly aggressive that way. Well, maybe if you do more blog writing, you kind of move yourself towards uh, the sense of self-reflection and and collecting thoughts. Uh, and, and maybe, you know, us asking you questions like we did today uh, kind of uh, brings you also to a moment where you reflect on, oh, you know, maybe there is a contribution that you should make to um, the writing of a, of a pers personal history. It, it's interesting because I had a conversation with Ann Magnuson, um, I guess it was a couple of years ago now, we were talking about press and about how neither of us could take bad press. She continued to go on and became, you know, a, a fairly well-known actress, uh, but still to this day, she has trouble with, with non-productive uh, You know, negative press. And I think that that might be part of it. Um, fear of, of reprisal, fear of... Uh, Backbiting. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, that's, a, that's a, a, something that none of us really ever talk about that much because there wasn't a lot of that from the old days, but, but it exists. And usually it's from people who weren't exactly the center focal point. They always seem to have something to say. And those are, those are hurtful things to some of us. Maybe that's why I keep so positive. Um, but as I said, if somebody else wanted to do it, I'd be like, well, you do it. <laughs> something that, um, just, just came to my mind. Um, coming back to the current situation and to the virus. And, um, you know, there were a lot of people that, fled the city when uh, the very first moment that this that this crisis hit mostly people from the upper east side who went out to the hamptons and and <laughs> and probably spread it over there so i was just wondering if you have any feelings about people that you know leave new york city the moment the going gets tough <laughs> You know, everyone who's got you know a couple of hundreds in their pockets are rubbed together that's what they do And, and fine, leave. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but it would never occur to you <laughs> if you had a place in the Hamptons to, like, get the hell out of town the moment it gets rough. <laughs> I don't think that would be the reason I would go. Secondly, I would never have a place in the Hamptons. <laughs> because the Hamptons are basically New York City in, a, in fancy sweatpants. When I was growing up, there was the urban side of me. But then there were the summers when my parents would ship me off to the family farms. So I know how to deliver a calf. I know how to collect eggs from the chicken coop. I know how to milk a cow. And I can drive a tractor. So we're talking about a, a really extreme um, orientation to geography here. It's either urban or it's completely rural. It's what's in between. It doesn't matter to me. In, in fact, when you talk about leaving New York, If I ever left New York, which actually my husband and I were thinking of at some point, not leaving, but getting a place way out in the sticks somewhere. And that's, you know, a tiny little cottage with a big piece of land. And for that dog, it would also be good, right? We're hearing somebody barking. Yeah, he's actually under the covers barking. Because he hears us? <laughs> 
Yeah, he's, he's a tiny little thing. He's a oh, dachshund. Yeah, they they think they're just like terriers. They think they're really strong. Yeah. yeah. They think they're really strong, but meanwhile, they're barking from <laughs> right. behind your legs. So uh, did you uh, think about some uh, direction when you looked uh, out out towards, um, you know, a rural part around uh, New York or Manhattan? Did you think like Sullivan County, where some people are actually, or Ulster County? Or, you know, our neck of the woods here in Connecticut, um, was there anything that uh, whetted your appetite? Well, you're, you're going to get a kick out of this, but all of us who were door people back in the day are all actually still friends. So one of my old door, door person friends and his wife are up in Lyme, Connecticut, and we quite like it there. It's within driving distance still. We should tell people who don't know the geography, um, it's a coastal area um, at uh, what's being ca called the Sound of Long Island, and um, it's right after a big river, the Connecticut River. Yep, and quite rural and charming and very New England, a lot of fences. And stone walls even, I, th I saw. Mm -hmm. Most of those stone walls have been there for 300 years. People right. don't realize that all the time. Sebastian, you're so quiet. Yeah, said all these boring <laughs> no, things. No, no. I guess um, I don't really have that much to ask. One thing I was wondering is what you think about, because we're talking about New York and, and, you know, what really makes New York are the public spaces and the public sphere, which now are not existent. I feel like the only time that Uh, New, you know, New York sort of comes together as a city, or these, as this 7 p.m. ritual where everybody goes out on their fire escape and they clap and they bang. Uh, you, uh, I was wondering how you feel about that, and if you participate. <laughs> I not participate. Usually, they're banging on their pots and pans, and I'm sitting in front of the building having a cigarette, ignoring them. Um, <laughs> It's interesting what you're saying about public spaces, because there's something I'm going to pull back to the 80s again, which was that, you know, we were all poor artists. Nobody had a, a either you had a bunch of people in a big loft or you lived in like a tiny little apartment on St. Mark's Place or Avenue B. So I always felt like the nightclubs were our living rooms right. because that's where we congregated. Right. And we didn't have iPhones. You didn't call anyone really ahead of time. You just simply appeared. Right. And that was a really important part of the social structure. Yeah. Can I ask you where you live where you lived back back then? Oh, um, oh I lived in a few different places, but my my main apartment was 170 Avenue B. It was a storefront that um, a boyfriend of mine at the time and I had gotten. It was completely gutted. It had no walls, and behind the the, uh, the wall boards were all these Nazi insignias because it had been a Nazi right-wing headquarters or something at some point. Um, and we completely redid that and put walls up and turned it into a home. Um, so I lived there for several years. And, and then uh, the guy who lived next door and upstairs after my boyfriend and I split up, he and I sort of fell madly in love. So I moved to 168 Avenue B. <laughs> There wasn't a lot of moving around. So that was plan B. It was always plan B. It was always plan B. And it was always sort of in that neighborhood. I started out on East 5th Street, ended up on Avenue B, moved to Avenue A, moved back to Avenue B, moved to 6th Street. 
And then after that, I moved down to Little Italy, and that was a whole different chapter of my life than after that. Once in a while, do you meet Ian Schrager still? Do you have contact, or is it lost? Ian and I have history. <laughs> I, uh, I've been out of touch with Ian for uh, a long time now. Um, I, you know, I, I, I keep in touch with his, um, his uh, Instagrams and all that, but um, Ian and I were good friends back then. And of course, the old thing was that if you said that Steve Rubell was a sweetheart, you didn't actually know him. Okay. Well, um, I I have run out of uh, you know imminent questions. Um, Sebastian sounds like he's also um, happy with all the stuff we were able to unearth today. Yes, very much so. Very much so. Not and you realize it's like a tiny tip of the iceberg, and we'll leave it at that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm asking you about that book project. You know, <laughs> you want to see more of the iceberg. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for sharing memories, uh, time, ideas, um, thoughts, uh, observations, and uh, for being a great sport. Um, you know, being part of uh, our little podcast project, um, which will not uh, reach thousands of people because we're not that big yet. <laughs> But uh, maybe, uh, you know, a few people of, uh, you are curious here and there. And uh, Kimberly will, should, should listen to this also. Yeah, she will. <laughs> <laughs> She'll be one. Thanks so much. <laughs> thank yeah, you. Yeah. Sally. Yeah, thank, thank you very you. much. Yeah. Take care. All right. Take care. Good luck. Bye. Thank you. <laughs>